So I, I wanted to say you've got the idea now that although we are called the particle theory group, uh, we don't actually all work on particle theory. Some of us work on string theory. Some of us work on mathematical methods uh, connecting two different classes of theories. It goes by the name of gauge gravity duality or what uh, uh, David just referred to as the ABS safety correspondence. Some of us work on things relevant to the Large Hadron Collider and some others uh, work on issues connected with astrophysics and cosmology. And by the way, there are only eight of us. <laughs> this is, it's not that we have a huge army of people. But what we do like is to interact with others. We interact with the mathematicians, we interact with the astrophysicists, the particle physicists. And uh, although we are theorists, we also interact with experimentalists. In fact, some of us are married to them, so it can't be helped. So uh, I want to tell you about a sort of a, you know, I have a day job as a theorist, but I do also have a second career as uh, part of an experiment which I was invited to join uh, now nine years ago, which is this amazing thing at the South Pole. So I always like to show this thing, you know, you can't see it from the back, but every direction points north here. <laughs> and uh, that's where there is this amazing laboratory, which is this in fact is what's on the surface. The experiment extends down two and a half kilometers to the bedrock under the pole. And it's amazing that, uh, well, that physicists actually managed to convince people to give them the resources to build such a detector, which obviously most of us, uh, including many experimentalists, thought was folly for many years, until the day it came up trumps, which happened quite recently. And that's what I'm going to tell you about. I will also tell you why theorists are interested and involved in experiments such as these, uh, and what bearing it has on the kind of work that we do here in the Rudolf Pyle Center. So uh, the title is Seeing the High Energy Universe. How do you see the universe? We see it with photons uh, coming along our past light cone. That's all you know about the universe. And if we plot uh, with, a, say, an ideal detector, the amount of energy we are receiving as a function of the wavelength uh, or the energy of the photon up here, you see uh, that the sky is really dominated in terms of energy by the cosmic microwave background, and there is the characteristic Planck shape. And uh, we know that although our knowledge of the universe for many years has been restricted to just this optical band, it so happens that the sun, our star, emits light in that uh, range, and that's why our eyes are uh, sensitive to that. We don't see any of the rest of it, but we have been able to open new eyes on the universe. And that started with radio that was just uh, during the war, and then microwaves, of course, and then we have gone through infrared, ultraviolet. This is important because distant sources are redshifted, as we said. So in order to see them, you have to observe in the infrared. And we just heard about uh, an application of uh, what interesting phenomena we might see in the ultraviolet and X-ray range. The final frontier here is gamma rays, but gamma rays can only take us so far. They can take us to something of the order of 10 TeV, which is roughly the energy of the Large Hadron Collider, because then the photons that we are trying to see on the route to us will hit other photons that happen to be hanging around, like the infrared uh, background photons left over from the formation of stars, and they're attenuated. However, if we use charged particles, cosmic rays, we can in principle see up to 10 to the 11 GeV, they too will ultimately uh, see the background photons as high energy particles because you know from special relativity 
If I have a 10 to the 11 GeV proton, that's the gamma factor, the relativistic factor is 10 to the 11 because the proton weighs a GeV. So to it, a microwave photon, which is 10 to the minus 3 electron volt, actually looks like you multiply that by 10 to the 11, it looks like a 10 to the 8 EV, in other words, a 100 MeV photon. So you're moving so fast that even a soft photon hitting you feels like a hard gamma ray and that will break it up. And uh, you have this so-called Grisen, Zatsepin, Kuzmin effect that uh, they will create a lot of pions. And those pions would go into neutrinos and those will travel all through the universe. Nothing stops neutrinos. Therefore, ultimately, if you want to see the universe back to the early uh, uh, universe, you must learn to look in neutrinos. That's the challenge. The challenge, of course, is that they're very hard to measure as well. They're very hard to detect. So the story starts with uh, this guy I mentioned uh, discovering cosmic rays uh, 100 years ago, 101 years ago now. And that discovery has now been extended in this plot which shows you the flux of cosmic rays versus their energy to this 10 to the 11 GeV that I just uh, motivated for you. Okay? That's amazing. You can see the number of uh, decades of energy that you have been able to explore this domain with. Is a variety of experiments, some uh, based on the ground, others flown on balloons. They now fly balloons around the Antarctic on the prevailing winds, which stay up for days at a time, and then, of course, on rockets and satellites and so forth. We still are somewhat uncertain about where these energetic particles come from, why they have exactly this power law shape, although Tony Bell, who is in the Clarendon lab in the laser physics group, had an interesting theory as to how they get that spectral shape, which we might be able to uh, soon test. And the real culprits, we believe, are these most violent uh, sites in the universe, the centers of galaxies like ours, which have got a black hole that is accreting matter, shooting out jets of plasma, uh, which then evidence themselves as uh, huge radio lobes, or gamma ray bursts, which are the most powerful explosions in the universe, as bright as the whole galaxy, but we don't really know what they are except that they also involve gravity. They involve ultimately the energy of supermassive black holes dragging in matter. That's the most efficient way to convert matter into radiation and uh, we believe these are implicated. But one way to find out what these things are doing is to look into them, which is very hard to do optically because things are obscured by dust, by radiation and so forth. But uh, you can do it with neutrinos, and neutrinos are always produced when you have high energy particles interacting in matter. Okay? And they're produced essentially through the production of particles that you're familiar with, pions and kaons and so on, which ultimately decay into neutrinos. And those are the guys we ought to look for. And you can see on this plot that the energy range of the CERN Large Hadron Collider is only up to here. Cosmic rays, nature, can do a lot, lot more than that. And one of the big mysteries in this thing is to find out how it actually does that. I should also mention that these neutrinos are actually quantum mechanical. They oscillate. They are light particles. They mix with each other as they propagate. They oscillate from one type into another, as uh, dictated by the quantum mechanics that you have heard about. And but therefore, we have a laboratory for studying quantum mechanics on cosmological scales now, which would be very, very interesting. So David showed a version of this which is even more spectacular, which is that to create some of these uh, particles of Planck energy, you'd have to build a collider as big as 100 light years. For cosmic rays, it is not that impressive, but you'd still need to build a collider the size of Mercury's orbit to uh, 
accelerate to 10 to the 11 GeV, the protons that you have actually observed on Earth in the Pierre Auger Observatory in Argentina, uh, which has observed particles. And the plot here shows that to just contain such a particle of that enormous energy in a ring, you need to have a magnetic field as strong as that and an extent as big as that. The product of the two must lie on that line in order for the particle to even be held in its orbit according to the equations uh, David showed you, far less to accelerate it. So upstairs we have an accelerator physics center. People worry there about how to accelerate particles to high energies, develop new techniques, laser fields and so forth. Well, nature clearly has a lot to teach us and we haven't yet learned how it manages to do this without the benefit of thousands of trained engineers and physicists, right? But there is a challenge for you, okay? And here is the LHC, our pride and joy. And here we are being put to shame, okay? Now, the point here that I want to make is however those particles accelerate uh, these enormously energetic uh, protons, they would ultimately make neutrinos. So here is a schematic of how those neutrinos are being made through the processes that I told you about. And we can make very simple estimates based on how much energy these uh, sources are dumping into the cosmic rays. We can normalize that to the amount of neutrinos you'd expect. Because roughly speaking, as much energy goes into the byproducts as in the sources. So whatever energy we can see in the cosmic rays should also be there in the neutrinos. And we can make estimates of what sort of flux they should have. Obviously, I'm not going to show you the details, but these are the kind of calculation that uh, we make in order to estimate how big a detector we need to do this. And turns out that uh, nature has already provided us sources of neutrinos, uh, which some of which are indicated here. There is the cosmic neutrino background. Uh, uh, we just heard about the cosmic axion background that might also be there somewhere. This has not been detected. It's too challenging at the moment. But we have detected neutrinos from the sun. We have detected neutrinos from supernova 1987A, which many of you will remember. Most of my students are too young. They, you know, I tell them 1987A, and that was, you know, while well, they were still in primary school or something. But uh, we have also the relic neutrinos from past supernovae, which have yet to be detected. But we have neutrinos being made in the atmosphere of the Earth by the interaction of this cosmic rays, which we can measure, and that is actual data from IceCube. And we hope that ultimately, if you go to high enough energies, we'll start seeing neutrinos that we have calculated must exist from active galactic nuclei, from gamma ray bursts, and from this GZK process that I mentioned, where the protons run into the cosmic microwave background and create pions. And the process is always the same. It is shown here again. The proton comes in, hits a nucleus in the atmosphere, creates a so-called extended air shower. And that creates pions, and which ultimately decay into muons and neutrinos. Those muons are going through us right now, as are the neutrinos. Uh, obviously, we cannot detect them because uh, we are too small to do so. You need a big detector. We'll see how big when we do the classic back of the envelope calculation, because we know that neutrinos interact very, very weakly. They interact with their cross section, which is very, very small compared to the kind of things we are used to, say, for photons or electrically charged particles, for which you know that the typical cross-section is of order a barn. That's why we invented the unit, which is 10 to the minus 24 centimeters square. This is nine orders of magnitude smaller, okay? So therefore, uh, this is the kind of calculation our undergraduates do. How many nuclei do you need? Well, Avogadro's number is big, but you still need a lot of material. And if you want the rate of events for neutrinos, it turns out that you detect one per year 
in a kilometer cube detector. Okay, that's how big you need to get. You have to think big. How do you detect them? Well, the neutrino would come in, hit something, and that uh, would create a charged lepton, in this case a muon. Muons travel a long way. And if they are traveling through a medium, they might be going faster than the speed of light in the medium. And that would set up a Cherenkov cone, a shock wave of light. And we can detect that with sensitive photodiodes or uh, photomultipliers uh, buried in the detector. And what you have done is to follow up this thing. Uh, you can do it in water. People have thought of doing it in other media. But we decided to do it in ice. Because nature has been bountiful enough to give us a lot of ice in the, at the South Pole. North, uh, if you also have ice in Greenland that doesn't seem to have the right properties. This one is perfect because this is actually a plateau. This is quite high up. Okay? And you already have a big base station there which provides the necessary infrastructure. And in particular, uh, you know, flights can go there regularly, land on skis on this trip. And uh, this is where the base station is. There were a couple of hundred people. There are lots of experiments being done, uh, including ones in cosmology. But our route to work is over here, where you have the ice cube uh, detector buried deep underground, uh, under ice rather, two and a half kilometers down. What you do is you drill holes two and a half kilometers down with a five megawatt drill of hot water. And uh, as I'll show you very quickly, you can implant detectors in the ice before it freezes up. It takes about a day. And then you have there the strings in the ice which have got uh, the ability to see neutrinos. And this is just to say, show that obviously I didn't do that work. Lots of competent people from elsewhere did the work. They know what they're doing. And uh, however, Oxford is involved in there. As you see, we have been there for some time. That's um, uh, 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 along with people from elsewhere, uh, so something like 11 countries. It's a relatively small collaboration as far as experimental particle physics is concerned. Typically, uh, ATLAS has something like 4,000 scientists. Okay. But uh, the detector itself is a challenge to build. As I said, you build, drill these holes. You lower the strings. The strings carry these uh, so-called digital optical modules, which are very sensitive phototubes made by Hamamatsu. And they are, of course, uh, remember, the pressure down here can go up to 300 atmospheres. They have to resist that. I'm happy to say that apparently 97% of our modules have survived. And you know it's just like your mobile phone. Either it works or it doesn't. If it works, it'll work until the built-in obsolescence period uh, runs out. In our case, that hasn't happened. But this whole array, of course, is an ice that is constantly moving. And somebody cal calculated that by 2120 or something, the whole array would have drifted to the edge of the Antarctic. But you know we are doing experiments at the moment. We are fine. And what we have right, right now is all these strings in the ice. And there are 60 of these modules on each string. So you have a gigaton of instrumented volume. Now, now we are talking. You know, size does matter in this game. We do need to have that kind of volume to be able to get an event rate that's at all interesting. And as I indicated, you have uh, these detectors looking for the flashes of light. They're faint blue light. That's what the wavelength of Cherenkov radiation is. Uh, at, uh, and you detect that with these things. And the timing tells you what direction they're coming from. I'll show you some actual data later. But really, we are looking at this so-called charge current interaction, where a neutrino exchange a W boson with a, one of the target nuclei creates a muon. That is the chap you're looking for. And of course, a local recoil. Right? If it was the electron neutrino or a tau neutrino, the signature is different. We'll see that. 
So this is what a muon uh, neutrino tract looks like. There is a lot of information here. I'll be obviously skimming over all these things, uh, but please feel free to ask me questions later. So the color code is actually the timing that tells you which one triggered earlier, which one triggered later. And obviously, we can reconstruct the direction very well. But because the muon is passing through, we can only get a lower bound on its energy. We can only measure up the amount of energy deposited while it was there. So here is the timing code. Red means immediately. This blue means delayed. And from that, we can infer a lot of other information as well as to the energy of the event. The other kind of, uh, they call it topology. I've objected that topologically these two are equivalent, but the experimentalists call them topology for some reason. Uh, they have a different signature. This is an electron neutrino that created an electron. An electron does not have much of a range. It is, as you know, a lot lighter than a muon. It stops almost immediately. So you just see a huge mushroom of light in the detector. That's about 100 meters across. Okay? That's an energetic electron neutrino. We know the energy now pretty well, but the pointing is very pure. I mean, now how do you know what direction that blob came from? Right? But we'll see that uh, experimentalists are very clever and find ways to do that. So we are looking for different kinds of neutrinos. They have different signatures. Some of them make charged leptons. And uh, then they can also uh, have interactions where they exchange a Z boson rather than a W boson. These are the so-called neutral current events. right? In fact, one of the first neutral current events that established the standard model was found in a bubble chamber photograph just downstairs where the Dalit Center now is years ago. And uh, we therefore have a long association with the history of neutrino physics here in Oxford. Uh, I mentioned Don Perkins and others earlier. And we are today carrying on the legacy by looking for these very energetic neutrinos coming from outer space, which give us both tracks through events such as this or uh, showers. Uh, as you see here, or cascades as you call them, which could be a signature of any one of these kind of things, where you make a tau lepton, for example, uh, or an electron, uh, but not a muon, which would give you a track. So basically, we know uh, the taxonomy of these things. We know what you're looking for. We know how to identify them. And then the question is, are we sensitive enough to see some of these cosmic sources that we know must be out there, because we see their charge counterparts, the cosmic rays. And this is the current status. We have seen, as I said, uh, neutrinos from supernovae and from the sun. We have seen the atmospheric neutrinos. We can, in principle, see the neutrinos from gamma ray bursts and going up to here using the ice cube detector, because we now have to learn a little more uh, than the GeV and uh, uh, MeV and GeV that you've been using. G is giga, C is tera. And you have to go further to exa electron volts and uh, then to peta-electron volts, and finally to zeta-electron volts, which is 10 to the 11 GeV. Okay? So uh, you know, that's how you learn classics here. We just extend the energy <laughs> range a bit. Okay? And uh, we also have the low energy frontier is equally interesting, because this is where we can look for dark matter, which Felix gave such a wonderful talk to us about. One of the signatures he mentioned was the annihilation of dark matter elsewhere in the galaxy. And of course, he was talking about searching for photons. But photons can get absorbed. Neutrinos don't. So we can look, for example, at the sun, which has been sweeping up dark matter for the last 5 billion years, which are annihilating inside the sun right now as I speak. And if we see a single high energy neutrino from the sun, one high energy neutrino, say, of energies in that range, that will be a 
tremendous, stupendous discovery because there is no way that any astrophysical process in the sun can make that. It would be a signature of dark matter. And we are also trying to do fundamental physics with this by studying these neutrino oscillations by lowering the threshold of our detectors to few GeV because then we can do experiments using the free beam of neutrinos that nature has given us made in the atmosphere which allows us to probe certain fundamental aspects of the neutrino mixing and the quantum mechanical oscillations such as the mass hierarchy and possibly one day the CP violation that might be there in the neutrino sector, whether there are single let this new kinds of neutrinos, etc., etc. So uh, that was all, this was all, you know, what you put in the proposal and you hope for the best that somebody will fund you to build a detector which they did and so on, so on. But of course, the payoff is after years and years, you finally see them. And these were the first two events that we saw. You can look at the tremendous energy. This is, you know, uh, two orders of magnitude beyond uh, the LHC already. And uh, of course, uh, being the serious people we are, we call them Bert and Ernie, okay? And they made the cover of physical review letters, okay? And then, of course, that opened up this possibility that we are seeing cosmic neutrinos, but the case wasn't yet clear because here is the plot of what we expect to see. For example, from the process where the protons of cosmic rays run into the cosmic microwave background and that they are called cosmogenic neutrinos. And this calculation was done uh, by Marcus Arles, who was our postdoc here and uh, some of us. And we made the uh, most flexible assumptions we could make about uh, this process. And nonetheless, uh, we could push it up above that red line. And you see these events lie clear above it. Uh, not that much clear. The excess is only about three sigma. It is not enough to call it discovery, but it certainly whetted our appetite. Okay? It showed us that we are able to see high energy events for which we do not have uh, an explanation in terms of the so-called guaranteed cosmogenic flux. These must be to do with the sources. Okay? So uh, we decided we'd have to do something about it. We have to look for these guys. And the problem is that normally what we do is we look through the Earth because when we look up, the cosmic rays are creating so much background when you look up, we are blinded by it. We'll see that you have to reject one in a 10 million events in order to see what you're looking for. That's because these cosmic rays are creating this huge flux of neutrinos and also, of course, the accompanying muons in the process, which uh, have a huge event rate upwards. We need to look down to see them, but then we are not sensitive to the bulk of the signal, which is fat upwards, right? So therefore, what we are really doing is we are following this track of these cosmic rays that we know do exist and trying to see if somewhere new physics comes in, a new signal comes in. There is also a signal from the production of uh, so-called heavy flavors like, you know, bottom quarks or charm quarks, which we know must be there at some level. We have not seen it yet. But what we are hoping to see is some new flux coming in here, which in this scale, which is energy squared times the flux, would come out as a horizontal line. Uh, is distinct from this steeply falling spectrum. That is the theoretical calculation. That's the measurement. Very good agreement. You have to agree. But we are looking for something like this, and this is our current bound. Now, the name of the, uh, the, the this, this is, okay, this may not be as much of a challenge as the dark matter search that Felix talked about, but it is challenging all the same, because if I look in zenith angle, this is uh, looking up south pole. This is looking down through the earth towards the north pole. And you see that the background of atmospheric muons is huge, okay? So we have to 
somehow reject these guys if you look up. We don't want to see the muons from the cosmic ray interactions. We want to look at the cosmic neutrinos that are coming behind them. So you have to basically reject one in a million events because the thing we are looking for is down here and the background is up here. Okay? Looks impossible, but in fact it is not impossible. What we can do is that we can use the detector itself as its own veto. We can sacrifice part of the outer detector and basically demand that what you are looking for is not accompanied by a muon which would have been made in the same interaction in the atmosphere that produced the neutrino. So we basically throw out any event which does not start in the detector. So basically if, it, if there is any action on this periphery, then we just throw it out. We just look for what is happening inside the detector, the argument being that it has to be a neutral particle in order to enter without leaving any signal there and then do something spectacular in here. And we have managed to do this, that when I say again we, I mean the competent experimentalists on this experiment have managed to do that. The energy threshold has been lowered down to 40 TeV, which is a low energy for us, although it is still about four times higher than the energy of the LHC. <coughs> we look for events which are extremely bright, which trigger uh, you know, a very large number of our phototubes which I forgot to mention since I skimmed over the details, digitize the signal right there so it comes to the surface. It is in a form that I could analyze on my laptop. In fact, uh, uh, you know, well, my shift was a few weeks ago. We can actually run this entire detector from a laptop and Wi-Fi. Okay? I don't need to go uh, to the pole and you know, uh, to, to, to run it. I mean, this is remarkable. This is the nature of, uh, and it also is good for the ozone layer, I think, so that's fine. Now, what we have here is a possibility of looking at this neutrino flux against this background by doing this clever trick. But of course, when we do this, we also suppress track-like events because track-like events will have come through there and I'm rejecting them. So I would tend to, uh, I would expect to find mostly events due to electron and tau neutrinos which have come in here without an accompanying muon and have created an event in my detector. I have sacrificed the outer 30%, but that's still a lot of detector left. And what you see here is, I mean, I'm, I, I thought I would really show you some actual data so you get a feeling for uh, you know, what we really work with, the kind of uh, analysis one needs to do. This is the background, and what we have managed to do is to separate this little part here with more than 6,000 photoelectron hits, which do not leave any trace in the outer part of the veto, which allows us to say that this cannot be part of that, and this is something new. This is the signal that we are looking for. And although this is not theoretical physics, what actually goes into doing this separation is theoretical physics. The algorithms that are used have interesting connections to uh, uh, mathematical structures that are used in other parts of theoretical physics. I could tell you about that in some detail. But let me show you some pretty pictures because ultimately it's these things that we live for. So when we did this analysis, first thing we did was rediscover Bert and Ernie, but we found 26 other events. Okay? And now we have some significance because we see 28 events, but that expected background is only about of the order of 10 events. So now we do have something which is stronger than uh, uh, nearly five standard deviations. Uh, and if you include those two, it is actually above five. So it's time to, uh, well, time to get excited, right? And you see that most of these events are blobs. They are not things which have got accompanying muon tracks. This one is a muon track, but this is an electron or a tau neutrino, or it could be a neutral current event due to a muon neutrino. We cannot tell just by looking at that. We have to do a little more work. 
we have to ask what their uh, distribution is, energy versus the declination angle. They seem to be mostly showers, uh, as you see here. Only a few are tracks, but that's as we expected. Here are Bert and Ernie uh, at sticking out at a PEV. Uh, I mean, this is a tremendously high energy, and it t tells us that we have found something new in nature. Nobody has been able to uh, create particles of that energy before, at least in neutrinos. And you can even from those blobs, uh, this is a very busy plot, but just to sort of uh, show you that this blob here, you wonder which direction the parent neutrino came from. Well, if it came from this, uh, this direction, according to that red line, then you would expect the timing of the hits in the photomultiplies to be according to the red line. If it came the other way, then that would be the blue line, then the timing would be according to the blue line. And you can see that the data actually allows us, by looking at these so-called waveforms, to pick out what direction it came from by looking at this timing. And therefore, we are able to identify what direction on the sky these apparent blobs came from, which is, I think, rather clever, because that then allows us to start doing astronomy, albeit rather crudely. So the first thing is that we have these uh, 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 events which are above the expected background. Those are those points that you see here. This is the expected background with very conservative uncertainties. And now I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. That's where our contribution came in, in estimating that uncertainty. But you know things are not clear. Is there a, a cutoff beyond that point? These are upper bounds, so there is no events there. And there also seems to be a up, upper bounds here. Is there a gap there? At higher energies, there is the so-called Glashow resonance, where an electron neutrino can come in, create a W boson. And uh, are we seeing that? These are all questions that we have yet to answer. But meanwhile, uh, it has been very rewarding. We were voted breakthrough of the year as a science, as a physics result. And uh, science even put us on the front cover, that uh, event that I showed you earlier, which is now uh, called Big Bird. And the distribution of these events in declination, in the direction in the sky that they're coming from, I showed you already. That's the South Pole. This is the North Pole. And we see the distribution is, in fact, quite different from what you'd expect according to the background atmospheric neutrinos, which is this blue line. In other words, this is not coming from a particle that is being made in the atmosphere by some exotic process. That is a possibility. We can rule that out. They are definitely consistent with something which is isotropic about us. So that's the first sign that we are onto something that is of potentially, well, cosmological or cosmic at least interest. They might be coming from the halo around our galaxy, which is also symmetric about us. But they might be coming from extragalactic objects, which would, by definition, be isotropic about us. And uh, there is a lot of physics that goes in here that I can only allude to. At high enough energies, neutrinos will be absorbed in the atmosphere. This is showing their attenuation for different energies. And that allows us to make estimates of how many we should expect as a function of the zenith angle, knowing the cross-section. And then we can compare that with the data. And then we can conclude that what we are seeing is definitely the extraterrestrial neutrinos. They're not being made in the atmosphere of the Earth, and they are probably coming from extragalactic objects, although currently we cannot be sure of that. They could be coming from within our galaxy. right? And so at the moment, the bottom line is just this. What does their distribution look like on the sky? Well, this is what is shown here. This is called the log likelihood. This is a measure of the probability that the event actually came from that direction. The fuzziness is because the reconstructions are not accurate. I told you they're plus minus 10, 15 degrees. So this is hardly astronomy. But you know you have to take a first step. 
And this is the same thing being shown in different coordinate systems. So this, in this coordinate system, which is the so-called equatorial system, that is the galactic center. And there appears to be a clustering of events around the galactic center, as you would expect for something to do with our galaxy. You know, maybe these neutrinos are from the decay of dark matter. But uh, in fact, one of the highest energy events did come from that direction. Okay? And the same, this is the galactic center now in galactic coordinates, where it's, of course, at the center of the picture. But at this point, you go and talk to your statistics chums, and they sort of throw cold water on you. And they say, well, yes, that's what it looks like to you, but it's not actually true. Because you know, if you spend enough computer power doing random realizations of the sky, scanning in right ascension, you find that 8% of the time, you'll get a clustering like that just by chance. Right? And 8% is not small enough for us to think that it is significant. So what's the answer? Well, you could continue debating about what sort of statistics you should use, or better still, get some more data. Right? And that's exactly what we are now doing. So we'll soon know whether these sources are galactic or actually extragalactic. There has been a profusion of theoretical ideas about what these events could be due to, and uh, they're so too small for you to read from the back deliberately, okay? because, <laughs> because some of them are uh, very baroque, and you know, I would not want to. So here is testing relativity with high energy neutrinos, sub-PV neutrinos from unidentified sources, the super heavy particle origin, and you know, some of them have more than one sort of implausible thing tied in. But uh, you know, so there are a lot of, well, I just want to say people, theorists always get excited when these things appear, because now is a chance to try out some of these new ideas we have had about new physics and see if they survive, or indeed, they might be responsible for some of these things. So let me just give you the current picture. I showed you this already. This, these have been seen for some time. These are just conventional neutrinos from pion and kion decay in the atmosphere. But now we are seeing this spectrum, which looks flat, because this is plotted in energy squared times the flux. So if spectrum that goes as 1 over energy squared would look horizontal. And we are seeing this. And this is roughly where you expect events to be present from gamma ray bursts, from active galactic nuclei. We obviously don't have enough information yet to test those th th theories in detail. And we are heading towards the energies where you would expect this guaranteed flux of neutrinos from the interaction of cosmic rays with the uh, cosmic microwave background. So things are getting very, very exciting now. But let me just tell you for a second, you might be wondering, this is all very fine stuff, but what is the particle theory doing in this experiment? Well, I'm plotting a flux here. You had some events, but to convert an event into a flux, you need to know the probability of the interaction of the particle with matter. Okay, how often does it interact? Now, we know, of course, at what uh, uh, rate neutrinos interact when they're at laboratory energies. That's how you measure it. Okay? But we are not talking about energies which are a 1,000 times, 10,000 times higher than anything we have ever had in the laboratory. So you have to extrapolate. How do you extrapolate from what you know in a meaningful and sensible way and estimate the uncertainties because that is crucial to establishing whether you have a signal that is significant or not. Right? So I just want to give you a plug very quickly because I realize we are already uh, over our scheduled time of how it makes sense to be in a department where fortunately our neighbors have been doing things which turn out to be very relevant to this. In particular, particle physicists here have been involved in an experiment called uh, HERA at uh, Hamburg which has been measuring a process called deep inelastic scattering, which is exactly what we are measuring in ice cube. 
except they have been doing it with electrons and protons rather than neutrinos. You can't accelerate neutrinos, but they do it with electrons. But electrons for most purposes are like neutrinos. They are of course got electromagnetic interactions, but otherwise they are particles that interact with protons without strong interactions. And that diagram shows the technical thing and I have deliberately kept in all this stuff that I am not going to explain just to impress on you that there is some hardcore physics behind all this. You have to do a lot of work to measure the probability of a neutrino interacting with the so called partons within the nucleus, you know the quarks and the gluons and their distribution within the nucleus is parameterized by things called parton distribution functions which are these quantities here and those in turn are related to the measurements that you can make at the large uh, at the Hera machine. So, what you have here is a measure in those kinematic variables that I had written on the page there the momentum transfer in that interaction and the fraction of the momentum uh, of carried by the struck parton of what range has been investigated by experiments and these experiments H1 and Zeus, Zeus was the experiment here uh, with people who are involved has investigated a much deeper kinematic range than before and found something very surprising. When you look at the universe at very low Bjork and x, this is the parameter that characterizes the fraction of the momentum carried by the struck parton. The nucleus is basically made of glue. This is the gluon structure function which you see here has been divided by 20 in order to bring it down to this scale otherwise it would be up there. The nucleus is basically glue, this constituent quarks that you have heard about which make up a proton are entirely unimportant when you look at it in this kinematic region okay? because you can create pairs and pairs of gluons to these non-perturbative processes which essentially swamp the nucleus. So, we have to understand how neutrinos interact with that stuff in order to be able to interpret the findings at ice cube and we have done that. We can calculate the cross section for neutrinos to interact through the charge current for example, as a function of energy with that precision by taking the data that I just showed you and extrapolating it to the energies at which you are now observing ice cube neutrinos. That extrapolation induces some uncertainties. You have to use a machinery called the Dokshitzer Gribov Alterelli Parisi equation, and that uncertainty is reflected in that band there. And so, a lot of hard work has gone into it, uh, a large part of it done by my ex student Philip Murch, in order to calculate that quantity, and that is now the standard input into all these experiments like Ice Cube and others which are seeking to determine uh, whether cosmic neutrinos exist. And there is also the possibility that we might be able to turn the table. Our colleagues who work on the dynamics of quantum chromodynamics uh, tell us that this is what the nucleus looks like in the terms of the model that we are familiar with, you know quarks rattling down somewhere. But in this kinematic range, the density of gluons is growing so much that it, the thing is becoming opaque. It is like a black disk you might have phenomena which are non-perturbative in nature, you might form a new phase of matter something called a color gluon condensate. How do you test these ideas? Well, let us scatter neutrinos of these guys and see whether the predictions differ depending on what theory is the correct theory of this thing here and here you see that there are clearly differing predictions. Now, this is at energy of 10 to the 7 GeV. We have measured so far at 10 to the 6 where all these models give the same answer. But if we can go up to these energies, then we can tell the difference between what the physics of low XQCD is a, a, a field of great interest to people doing quantum chromodynamics. And how are you doing that? By measuring neutrinos down at the south pole under ice. I really like this, this interplay of you know very different uh, 
uh, spheres of activity which all bear on the same theoretical issues. But IceQ's physics program is broader even than that. We have I've already mentioned this part here at the search for extragalactic signals, point sources, gamma ray bursts, etc., etc. We also look for dark matter, as I mentioned in passing. We look for exotic particles like monopoles, which might be caught in the ice uh, because uh, uh, if they're slowly enough moving, they can get uh, ionized and uh, they can they might lose energy and get stuck. We look for neutrino oscillations. I'll not uh, keep you much further with this, but just to uh, mention this dark matter idea, which I alluded to earlier, that dark matter particles annihilating in the sun can generate neutrinos that we look for. At least you know where the sun is, so you can just look at the sun all the time. It just goes above and below the horizon at the South Pole, and we look to see if we see any high energy neutrinos from it. So far, the answer is no. And we are therefore able to put a restriction on the rate at which dark matter particles scatter with ordinary matter in order to be captured in the sun, which are very competitive with the direct experiments that Philip talked about, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, about uh, Felix talked about earlier. As you see here, uh, our constraints are way below that. And okay, so far we haven't seen anything, but who knows, very soon, right? And uh, we can also measure neutrino oscillations because they are coming through the Earth. And these neutrino oscillations have been measured in uh, terrestrial experiments, but you can see them over a baseline much longer than anybody else has. I'll again have to skim through this for lack of time. But you can see that we are able to distinguish between the non-oscillation case, which is this, and the oscillations that we find here. And this allows us to determine the characteristic mass difference square of neutrinos versus their mixing with each other, quantum mechanical, and the contours that we currently have are these ones, red ones here, not yet competitive with the one from the terrestrial experiment, MINOS, which is the flagship there, but we are catching up. And very soon, we'll have a new extension of ice cube called Pingu, which is the precision ice cube next generation upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, uh, promises to be able to do things that nobody can do at a long baseline experiment. So, you know, we have now got stuck into fundamental neutrino physics, starting with looking for neutrinos from gamma ray bursts. And just to end, something that I'm particularly interested in, neutrinos are produced in this ratio when they're produced to pion decay. You basically make muon neutrinos, no electron neutrinos, no tau neutrinos. But as they move through space, they mix with each other and they oscillate into each other. So after traveling far enough, the ratio should be democratic, one to one to one. And we can tell the difference between electron, muon, and tau neutrinos. So this is what we should see at Earth. But one can imagine lots of processes that violate or disturb the coherence that is necessary in order for these quantum mechanical oscillations to give you that number. right? And they could be something as fanciful as the fact that the neutrinos are coming to us through what looks like empty space. But is space really empty when you look at the Planck scale that uh, we heard about from David? Maybe it's a seeding maelstrom of black holes appearing and disappearing. What happens if a neutrino falls into a black hole? Is information lost? We are touching on some of the most fundamental and discussed questions currently in theoretical physics. And we have a way to experimentally probe that by checking whether this neutrino flavor ratio is as expected without such decohering influences. So this is something I'm very excited about. Uh, it might take a while to do this, but certainly it's on the cards. So let me uh, sum up. We have the first analysis from this uh, amazing experiment, which has shown us, I think, the first glimpse of an astrophysical neutrino flux. 
And that, of course, as usual, raises a uh, number of questions. We still don't know any of the details. We don't know the spectrum very well. The sky distribution is consistent with isotropy. We don't yet know if they're galactic or extragalactic. Uh, we don't know that yet, but we'll have twice more data in a couple of months. We are doing something very interesting to look at neon tracks coming from through the Earth all the way 8,000 kilometers across. And uh, we are able to do various technical improvements. So I think it is not far-fetched to say that we are really seeing the beginning of a new astronomy, a new window on the universe, where you look not in photons, but in neutrinos. And uh, this, in turn, interests us because it also provides us possible new probes of physics beyond the standard model. Thank you.